This week's guest is Rick Bernchelli, who joined us live and in person for an interview. Rick talks about his entry into the industry, first as a dishwasher, eventually a cook, before becoming a waiter and sommelier. We talk with Rick about his exit from the industry for nearly a decade before his eventual return. Rick then discusses his entry into the world of wine and the different avenues he took to grow his knowledge. Rick worked for over 20 years at Canoe in Toronto and is currently working as a sommelier at the Elora Mill. Rick is also a sales representative for The Case for Wine. Make sure you check out the wine portfolio at thecaseforwine.com and you can contact Rick directly to inquire about the wines at rick at thecaseforwine.com. Enjoy the show. We're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. I can't believe we're back. It's been a little spotty lately. My name's Kip. This is Dan. How are you doing, buddy? I am doing well, thanks. Yourself? Globetrotting. You've done your globetrotting? <laughs> for this month, yes, so far. Yes. So we'll see. So I think that'll be it for a couple, for a couple months, hopefully, but... Uh... We'll see how it goes. What about you? How's the campaign coming along? It's coming along. I'm, uh, I've been having fun. It's uh, meeting a lot of cool people out on the, while doing the canvassing. It's a little tiring doing that and running the two businesses, but it's been rewarding and uh, I'm enjoying it. And as of, I'm assuming this is dropping on the October 17th, which means mm-hmm. election night is a week from tonight. Do not forget to vote. I'd love it if you voted for me, but just come out and vote. The turnout sucks in municipal elections and we need to change that. October 24th. Advanced voting was actually on the 8th, so... And they actually have a couple more advanced polls, actually, as well. Yeah. So, we'll definitely uh, be... (laughs) Dan just left the room. Uh, He just left. Uh, That's it. The podcast is over. (laughs) He found that what he was uh, not... Oh, what do you got there? Uh, All the other advanced polls. Uh, Actually, I guess by the time you hear this, though, it'll be over because the last advanced poll is Sunday, October 16th. Right. So, okay. So, the advanced polling is over. The uh, election is October 24th. Come out and vote for all your municipal candidates. Uh, that's regional uh, municipal councillors, chairs, oh, and, and mayor. And I am your your friendly neighborhood mayoral candidate. So don't be afraid to check that name. Um, in addition, we should mention that uh, Dan's been uh, traveling all over the world for work. But so between these two, <laughs> the campaigning and the traveling, that's why the we have not been dropping our, your usual weekly episodes. Yeah. We apologize for that. Yeah, we should be back to regular cadence. By the end of October. Yes. Or early November, actually, because I forgot the other elections on a normal night that we record as well. So. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're doing our best here. Yeah. <laughs> early November, we'll be back to normal, more or less. Yeah. But you were just in Luxembourg? I was. I was in Luxembourg for a week. I was in Belgium and then Luxembourg. Uh, Luxembourg is a beautiful place. Um, very expensive place. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds but, like you uh, went to some cool spots, though. Yeah, I had a good time. I had a very good time over in Europe once again. So. Did you drum up any... Uh, Guests for our show? I don't know. I drank a lot of beer. Where the fucking go, Dan? <laughs> oh, but you know what? I did try, speaking on topic with this this evening, I did try some Lebanese wine when I was there. Oh. Because there happened to be a uh, bunch at the, the one Mediterranean restaurant we went to. We, uh, we used to have a really good Lebanese uh, wine at Sugar Run, but I did, then I lost my rep for that. She moved to a different company, yeah. and now I don't know who does it. But that doesn't matter because we have a great guest on this show coming up in just a minute who is also a wine rep who you'll be familiar with mm-hmm. from his many ads on the industry podcast. Rick Barrancelli is going to join us in just a second. 
I should mention, this will drop before Halloween, so you should be coming to Sugar Run to see Brown Man Ali Trio do the entire Thriller record oh, on nice. Saturday <laughs> night of the Halloween weekend. So I think that's the, the 29th or the 30th. It might be the 29th, but I should probably check that before I... Yes, yeah, it's the 29th. Is it the Friday or the Saturday? The Saturday. The Saturday, okay. The 29th of... Uh, so you want to check that out. You can also check out the big things happening at Babylon Sisters Wine Bar. We'll have DJ Nana that weekend as well at Babylon Sisters, also on the 29th. So, I'm going to try and be in two spots at once, I guess. <laughs> okay, and we have DJ Bane every Friday night. You should, we should mention that as well. Right. Okay, what else do we need to talk about? Let's. Uh, I think that covers it all. Subscribe, rate, review. You want to do all of those things? Yep, and always uh, anything we talk about during the show, you can find the links in the show notes as well. Right, and if you want to be a guest on the show, you're going to DM us at the Industry Podcast, or you can also email us directly info at the Industry Club. As always, a big shout out to Zach Hanna at zachhanna.co and that's who does our artwork for the Instagram mm -hmm. page so many thanks to him as always mm -hmm. enough about us let's uh, bring in Rick from rickatthecaseofwine.com which I've gotten used to saying Rick Baroncelli how you doing buddy good evening yeah thanks for joining us yeah, thanks very much this is exciting and thanks for all the support for the podcast we should say you're very welcome mm -hmm. very welcome really exciting to be here and to talk yeah so uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, you started, what, like, when, how old were you when you got your first industry job? Oh, wow, I was at a place called The Water Lot, mm. and this was in New Hamburg. I would have been 14 years old. I got my first dishwasher job. Mm. So, uh, yeah, Water Lot was a busy place and really did well in the, offs, in the, uh, the busy summer season. Stratford, I, I don't know whether Stratford was a busier town then than it is now, but it was... Uh, it was really a busy restaurant for the festival uh, mm. clientele. So, yeah, as a as a uh, dishwasher. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to start. Uh, like, yeah, you learned. So you would. Did you ever do any cooking or just dishwashing? I did. I uh, I was there for a couple years, and then I went to a place called Angie's Angie's Country Kitchen oh, in yeah. St. Agatha, and oh, I yeah. cooked there. Oh, nice. And uh, I did that for a couple years, and. How'd you get into that? Out of curiosity, the cooking part. Did you just get like promoted over the years? Or? I I just uh, I just needed money. Okay. I just needed <laughs> yeah. money, so I heard that Angie's was was hiring. I knew a few people that worked there, and they said, "Hey, we need a cook." And it would have paid more, a couple bucks more an hour. And in these days, like, you know, we're talking in the late seventies. Mm. You know, let your guests know that I'm fifty nine. Right, yeah. <laughs> not a young young guy. Right, we're not, so we're not far behind. No, <laughs> so. In these days, it was like seven seven bucks an hour. Yeah. So I was going to college at the time, and I and I remember, you know, working at Angie's, and I would drive from Brampton, and I knew I would have doubles on Saturday and Sunday, and that I'd be making slightly more than two hundred dollars working fourteen twelve fourteen hour days, right? So it was uh, it was a lot of hard work. Then I head back to Sheridan College. And um, yeah, it was just really, really hard work. And also in that time, one of the summers, I worked at the water lot again as a cook. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's when I met uh, two restaurant or two two guys that were servers at the water lot, and they bought the Aberfoyle Mill, Bob and Ray. Mm. And they said, Rick, do you want to? You know, you got a great personality. You're fun to work with. Why don't you come and work as a uh, as a busser? 
at the Aberfoyle Mill. Mm. So I went out and I worked at the Aberfoyle Mill probably for two weeks. And there was a server there that said, hey, Rick, come and work at the Millcroft Inn. We need waiters. to serve. You can serve breakfast and lunch. And I saw how much the waiters are making. Right. So I went out, I worked maybe a week worth of breakfast and lunch, and then a waiter called in sick for a dinner shift. Now, I know nothing about wine, really. I know nothing about food. And now, all of a sudden, I'm serving dinners. And what kind of a place was that? A little bit more no, fine dining? Millcroft Inn would have been more upscale. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really... It's still... They're still there. They're owned, they're owned by... Um, the outfit that owns uh, the Prince of Wales in Niagara on the Lake. I think it's called Vintage Hotels. Yeah, okay. So this is, you know, while I was thinking about what we're doing tonight and speaking of, I, th- I thought, what are the key pivotal moments in my life that created my decisions? Well, it's this first freaking night. Mm-hmm. So an eight top comes in, and as I said, I'm so green at this, and we had a really good wine list. Very good wine list there. And he was an Austrian guy, and he was entertaining a bunch of Russian oil people. Oh, yeah. And so he comes in. There's eight of them. He orders two bottles of, uh, of uh, Grand Cru Burgundy. Um, this isn't going to end with a broken cork, is it? No. Okay, good. And he ordered... <laughs> I just got nervous for you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, you know, and this is in the late, late 70s. He ordered um, a couple, two or three bottles of, of first growth Bordeaux. He ordered a couple bottles of Lafitte and some Mouton. Oh, shit. So we're talking very close to a $7,000 bill. Yeah. My first night, right? <laughs> and I could feel the other staff were a little bit irked that I'm serving uh, this guy because they know he's a good tipper. Yeah, yeah. My first night serving, I made over a thousand bucks. Oh, and you're thinking, this is just the how I, it's gonna be. This is the best thing ever, <laughs> best thing ever. And, and you know, I've, I've made over a thousand bucks every now and then, but it's not the norm. No. It's far from the norm, yeah. right? If it was, I never would have moved to the ownership side. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I thought, God, the money's really good. I, so I ended up working uh, for three years at the uh, Millcroft Inn. Uh, I bet. Serving, yeah. <laughs> it was like it was just waiting for that another $1,000 night to come through. But it was good. Like I, yep. it, that, um, that put me through university, really. The Millcroft right. Inn, I'd, yeah, I'd work... Um, yeah, I'd work three nights a week, and you know it was the, it was the hidden jewel. We'd walk, you know, I'd make eight hundred bucks working three nights back in those days. Jeez. It was really good money there, yeah. And where'd you go to university again? Uh, York. York. York so, university. And he's a fellow uh, poli sci grad. Yeah. Three, yeah. three political sciences around this fucking yeah. round table. <laughs> Middle Eastern yeah. politics, yeah. maybe. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it was. Was good. that your specialty, Middle Eastern politics? Yeah, Middle Eastern. Mine yeah. was American. What was yours, Dan? Hanging out. <laughs> Actually, I can attest to that. Yeah. You didn't, you no, didn't no, have a... You no, didn't. Well, not much of a specialty, because yeah. I ended up getting a minor geography as oh, part right. of that. Oh. So that's, uh, that's actually how I ended up with the kind of the job I do now. Right. Way, so. Yeah, so, yeah, it was, it was that, it was that, all, that all of a sudden, that exposure to money from a, a guy that, you know, we, I, we grew up with very little money. We mm-hmm. weren't poor, poor, but we didn't have a lot, and I had to work hard, and then all of a sudden, I'm doing okay, so... You know, you're going to York University, it can be a little bit of a fashion show there. Oh, yeah, so yeah. all of a sudden, 
the uh, the old hide house in Acton became oh, my yeah. go-to place because all of a sudden I've got six different leather coats. <laughs> the hide house in the Acton. The hide house. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I love the go, leather coats. I remember going there and all the non-stop commercials. <laughs> it's it's worth the drive to Acton. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's the right. The worth, yeah. worth the drive to Acton. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, in those days it was, um, yeah, I, I took a, a, a probably a eight or nine year uh, period of being in the car business. Oh. So, uh, yeah, I, I worked uh, in, in Brampton and I was in the service department of a Honda franchise and also the same uh, group owned a Mazda and a Suzuki. In French. the service department, so you were actually fixing the cars? Uh, no, I was kind of a service manager. Oh, gotcha. So I would, yeah, I would, man, what a stressful job that was. Like when I eventually left, uh, you know, married, my daughter's young, like I had, I had so much stress. The la- one of the last weeks I was working, I had, when I get stressed, I'll get the mouth sores inside the canker sores. Yeah, yeah. I went to the doctor and said, man, my mouth is killing me. I have like nine canker sores. And the guy goes, what do you do? And I said, I, I'm, I'm a, service, a service manager at a Honda franchise. And he goes, man, this stress is killing you. You got to get out of there. And I, was, I wasn't eating while I was eating. There was a, a Kelsey's right up the oh, road, yeah. and uh, <laughs> freezer to fryer every day. For oh, lunch. baby, it was good stuff. But man, I was not a healthy dude and just stressed because I used, I used to work at a Kelsey's. Did you? Yeah, that was interesting insight into how that whole chain restaurant stuff works. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, there's this one guy I never forget. I'm sitting there eating my, you know, my horrible lunch. You know, fries, poutine burger. with a burger yeah. and whatever. And this big guy comes in and. It's kind of this big horseshoe-shaped bar right in the middle of the uh, restaurant. And this big burly guy comes in and he's, yep, wonder what the sunshine girl's looking like today. And he's, and you see him fiddling with the paper, trying to get to page three, but he can't separate the newspaper, right? He goes, Jesus Christ, I can't separate the paper and I haven't even looked at the sunshine girl yet. But uh, yeah, I did a lot of, um, you know, that, yeah, really like bad, you know, I'm not much of a drinker or smoker, but bad eating lifestyle in those days, for sure. That was stressful because you took it from, you took it from customers who couldn't afford to get work done on the car. I had this one lady come in, came into the, uh, the shop. She needed four tires because the steel belts are hanging out of her her car, her tires, and she's got a little baby on her side, and we're looking at her car, and I'm sorry, you need tires, like this is so dangerous. And she's like crying, so I'm, I'm dealing with her, I'm dealing with the mechanics who, who you know, want me to sell the work that these cars need, taking it from the owner who wants to see sales, so it was really a stressful job. So that's why I kinda, after working at Millcroft, then I work at a legitimate job uh, that's why I went back to the restaurant business, and that's how I got into Oliver Bonaccini restaurants. Right. Oh, so nice. was Canoe your first one? No, Auberge was. Auberge. I was at Auberge for a bit. Went to Italy for a bit, and then Canoe. So when did you just like when did you start getting into wine? Decide that's what you wanted to focus on a little bit. I would say it was with uh, working with Ruben, who's the boss at one of the owners at uh, the Case for Wine. He was the psalm at Auberge de Pommier. Mm. And um, I never, I never knew much about wine. Like I, there was so much bullshitting that I did. Um, like before that, that period of working at Canoe and getting into the, 
car business, I worked for a very short period of time at some pretty good places. One place was called Centro in Toronto, and that was a Franco Provadello restaurant. I worked there in the heyday of Centro, mm. and the chef, chef Raffaello Ferrari was still alive, and you know he passed away. Talking about a what a fast-paced joint that was. It was great, beautiful Italian restaurant, and Franco is one of these iconic old school restaurateurs. And um, yeah, so I worked there for a little bit. We had a great wine list. I had no clue about the wine. And eventually I, I left there because I probably, I think they wanted to demote me to, um, to uh, 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 a busser because... Because of the lack of wine knowledge. Because of the lack of wine knowledge. Yeah, yeah I told somebody, I told somebody that uh, a certain meal didn't have cream and it was just laced with cheese. And I told them, um, oh yeah, the, well, what's this Amarone like? And I said, oh, it's a lovely light-bodied wine, right? <laughs> right? I, I had zero clue. Even, even you know, working at Millcroft didn't... And in those days, to me, what mattered more was making really good tips and really learning about the wine because I did not learn about the wine. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. But did it, you feel like you were getting good at the serving part of it? Yeah, 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 my timing was good. I was a yeah. good hustler. I liked working, yeah. And yeah. I was dry. I was How driving. to manage your time, that's the biggest Yeah, I was good with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was good with that. You know, what's really cool is, you know, moving moving forward, I worked, um, I worked for a very short period at uh, Langdon, at Langdon right. Hall. Yeah. And... Um, it was really funny because I saw Bill Bennett, who's, you know, who's used to own Millcroft Inn. He was one of the partners there. And I said, Bill, do you remember um, many, many years ago, this would have been in the late, uh, or in the kind of early 80s, the Toronto Zoo held something up at Millcroft Inn. And he goes, oh yeah, I remember that. Well, what the, the Toronto Zoo did is they held a big fundraiser. And they had all these people on the outdoor patio. And the, have you been to Millcroft? It's a beautiful water, beautiful kind of pond uh, right beside their patio. And then there's a waterfalls. And the waterfalls um, uh, just above it is an area called, I think they, they used to call it the pod. I don't know what they call it anymore. And it'll fit about 12 people. And you're overlooking this falls. It's really pretty. Well, they brought, they brought animals. The Toronto Zoo brought animals for all the people that came to this fundraiser. And they brought two elephants. Pretty cool. So I'm saying to Bill Bennett, do you remember the elephants went in the water and, and it's, it's walking in this pond right beside the patio at the Millcroft Inn and the elephant starts blasting the people with water. It's hilarious. It was, it was like, that was one of my uh, great, great memories of Millcroft oh, Inn. Wow. Yeah. Can't get away with that these days. No. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. shut down in a second. Yeah. Um, okay, so, you, so then you get the, the job at Canoe, and like mm -hmm. you, somewhere in here you realize, okay, fuck, if, I, if they're about to demote me because of lack of wine knowledge, and I want to yeah. I better figure this shit out. Yeah. And, and you, so you... I, I, I started taking uh, WSEC courses. Right, right. And, how, and how far did you get? All the way? Uh, no, not all the way, but what would have been considered the advanced level. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I did. I took a lot of WSEC. I took um, a lot of um, uh, courses with the Italian Trade Commission. So my shtick is more Italian wine, mm -hmm. and they would hold these month-long kind of uh, uh, seminars where you'd go to and you'd taste wines from all the regions. It was really good. And in those days, I think it was John John Zavo who was running a lot of those uh, things. And then, you know, I thought, uh, I thought, oh, do I want to 
get certified through a different avenue. Mm-hmm. And that's when I did the uh, the quartermaster. Yeah, explain to us the difference between like doing WSET and that. Yeah, the quartermasters is uh, is is a little bit different because they really reward your your work experience and your knowledge based on years of service. So at at that time, you know, when you said who influenced you, Ruben did for sure. Will Predom did. Of you know, you probably have some. Pierce Predom Wines, mm-hmm. Will, was, Will was my psalm. So all of these guys really influenced me in my wine journey, you know, tasting some amazing wine and you want to learn about it, taking courses. And so over the course of the, the years, doing the, or the uh, Court of Master Psalms, you could go, they give you credit for your knowledge and they assume if you've been in a business for, you know, 10 or 5 or 10 years, you should know something about proper Etiquette and service. Mm. So the quartermaster, you go, you go for a weekend. The first night or the first day, you sit in on classes. Then you do an exam, and then if you pass that, you've passed the introductory. And then over the next few days, you listen, you sit in on more more classes. Then there's a, I think it's on the Monday morning. They do a, I think it's a forty five uh, question. Uh, exam right at eight o'clock and then you will do um, then you do blind tasting no it's the other way around blind tasting first then you do the 45 questions and then you do a service element Mm. so I've had some tough goes with that and and the main thing with me my theory is very strong my service is very strong my blind doing as long as I've served I've done very very little blind my blind sucks if that makes you feel like I just oh. I, I like I can I I mean there's certain things that if I had three different things were put in front of me I would probably figure it out mm. but I just sometimes it, you discover that no matter how much you study and how much wine you drink your palate only develops to a certain level and there's some people who have that palate who where they can they can determine whatever, right? Yes. And but that it's some of that shit you you can develop, but a lot of it you're just born with. Yeah. Like well, and it's so evident because during my training, I um, one of the best uh, one of the best um, learning things that I found during my studies was it's called what wine am I tasting? And I think it's the wine enthusiast that does it. It's mm-hmm. like a it's like a no, it's the wine spectator. And you go onto this site, or you go onto this um, their magazine, and it'll be a one sentence or two sentence description of a wine. So, for example, this red wine starts off racy, has a purplish tone to it, and is light bodied, and blah blah blah. So then you look at the first set of possible answers. What are the possible varietals? And it'll give you five options. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon, is it a uh, Barbera, is it a Zinfandel, is it a Malbec, or is it a Gamay, mm-hmm. right? So you think, okay, based on what I know, I'm going to guess that's possibly a, a Gamay. Next will be country of origin. Third, third option will be vintage. Fourth will be uh, region, and, and so on. So you, you basically... Based on that description, you're guessing varietal, region, country, and age. Mm-hmm. And Ooh. it goes back for years and years and years. Well, see, and this is why... It's awesome. Sorry, yeah, it's awesome, but it's also like... I'm just never going to... like. I am super into wine. I love it. I've taken WSIC courses, but I'm just like... 
I'm never going to be so nerded out about it that I give a shit about being able to tell what yeah. vintage it is. Like, it's cool to know the grape and the region. I think that's a pretty cool thing to be yeah. able to tell by drinking it. But, like, the vintage, like, come on. I know, and people can do it. I understand that, but like to me, it just doesn't matter. Like, well, people, people get really frustrated when they're, you know, at the I'm at the Alora Mill now uh, as one of the psalms there, and mm. people get um, that I train are, get very frustrated very quickly about, damn, I can I can never pick that up. I can never, and I, I said, hey, I've watched videos of the best Canadian psalms and any psalm sitting around six of them at one table. And um, yeah, I remember. I remember watching one. Jen Huther was there. John Zabo, um, uh, Will Predom, all the best tasters, right? And they, they, all of them got it wrong. Some of them got varietal wrong. That's the way tasting goes. It sure. can be tricky, and it's like, darn, I didn't get that. Like Will, Will's, Will well, is a is fantastic it? taster, but he just said, darn, I didn't get that. What it is is educated guesswork. Yeah, right. Like, it is. It's, and, it's, yeah. a, it's a detective story, really. Yeah, you're building your case. Right. Yeah, which is cool. I like that part about it. But then I guess if you if you're not competitive about it, maybe that's my problem. I'm too competitive, and I'm just like it pisses me off if I get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. You gotta let it go and realize shit. Like you're only gonna go so far with this, and yeah. I, yeah, it's funny, and like so, Rick has done some, um, does these blind tasting. What would you call them? Events like uh, yeah. events that you do what once a month now, or I, yeah, I have been. We've we've taken uh, a couple a, a couple months yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, just the busy summer, and yeah. then uh, I'm not doing it in October because just extra extra work that I'm doing. But sure. uh, November, I'll pick it up again. Right, and so you did one at Babylon Sisters, and um, <laughs> and I sat in on that one, like not as someone who was part of the club, but just like to see how it went, and um, and it's interesting. It's like. Uh, it's it's a cool thing to sit through because I haven't done blind tasting since W set and and I had just come off COVID so I still had like oh. uh, yeah so I was literally, literally I didn't even try and guess because I was just like I like everything smelled like cough syrup so, oh. <laughs> but it's like but. It was interesting to sit there and see, like, even, like, and there were a lot of good wine nerds in the, at that uh, tasting there, like, some of the best ones in the city yes. uh, um, that had come to this club, uh, and there still, it was hard, like, now, was Rob Miller was the one who was curating it, right? Yes. So, he did pick some tricky ones, for sure. But he also picked some that you that I remember thinking afterwards, like, oh, that I feel like that's one that more people should have got. True. Yeah. So it's it, it, again at the end of the day, it's just like you say, it's like it was like following a detective story, but yeah, sometimes it, the clues lead you down the road a different like, path. But you also like, especially with, do you find whites much harder than reds? I find whites easier than you reds. You do. Okay. Yes, I find whites easier than reds, mm. and. Um, yeah, it's 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 such a strange thing. It's building that case. There's, and I I really do think, I I think there's a method you can really train yourself to be good at tasting, but it's a matter of spending time at it and developing a method, and that method has to have a sequence. And Rob, um, you know, Rob is is uh, you know he's 
as far as I know, he's one of the top dogs, if not the top dog in this area, mm-hmm. at the blinds. And he always says, like, look at look at the substance. What are the phenolic notes? What are the what's the structure of the wine? What's what's it telling you? And I've always I've always uh, when I've been really wrong, I've always wanted to jump to conclusions really early in a tasting, tasting a certain wine, and go, oh, what is this going to be? Blah blah, and then think, oh, it's got. You know, it's got um, you know really you know bright uh, bright uh, mouth watering notes to it. Okay, this is going to be a Sauvignon Blanc, and I jump right away. Well, I don't delve deeper into it, and then you catch other type of notes, and it could be you know bright and mouth watering, but then you get some peppery notes to it, and you you miss the fact that oh, it could be a Gruner Veltliner. Like you and I had that beautiful bottle at at uh, Babylon. You have mm-hmm. that great that do you still have that on. That, uh, oh, Rick, that I drank all that. You drank? <laughs> <laughs> but we, yeah. we actually we put it in the flight for a while, but the stuff that we that was did good today, stuff. Yeah, was so good. Um, so, so, so get this. I was, I was scheduled, uh, or I did, uh, one year I did my uh, SOM exam, and two nights before the exam, so I told you the sequence, you, like, you sit in uh, on one night, and then you go a couple days, and then you'll do the exam. Well, I had attempted to get certified, but I didn't get it one year because of my blinds. So then I go to do it again. So all I got to do is come in on the Monday and do the exam. On the Saturday night, my dog gets sprayed by a skunk. Oh. (laughs) So you know those old cartoons when, you know, Wiley Coyote bites into a stick of dynamite and he's got his fur all back like this? Well, my dog looks like that with... Skunk gunk, right? And that's all you can smell. It just gets all inside I your smell nose. Yeah, is I know. So I've had several pets sprayed by skunk, oh. and it's like for weeks. That's all. Like all I smell. Your house smells like it. Your pet smells like it. And it's all you can smell. Yeah. So I contacted the court. I said, "Hey, all I could smell is skunk. I got, I got um, two of the four right, and and I thought it made decent notes, but man." But I went all on taste because I could smell shit. Yeah, you're right? just like, well, it has notes of marijuana. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they said no. They said no. We can't do anything because if you, uh, you know, if we did it for because anybody could say that, I guess. Yeah, right? like, and we'd yeah. have to do it for colds and yeah. whatever. Uh, so. Well, it's interesting. I was, uh, the reason I was talking about whites, I find more difficult, is that because. There's very subtle differences, like you say, between a Gruner and a Sauve Blanc, and like very subtle differences. I, and a lot of them, a lot of like the really good whites, especially the ones that you would have at a tasting, tend to be like high acidity. So you can't really determine it from that, yeah. <laughs> you know. And like, and a lot of them, like certainly, if you get something that's more like citrus than stone fruit, maybe you can determine one from like stone fruit is more likely to be a Sauve Blanc or whatever, right? But yeah. um, but th- like I just find like there's so many different varietals uh, in the, of the whites that are very similar in in flavor. Maybe not as much in nose, but maybe that's why. Maybe it's just I'm not good at it. But uh, the reds, at least, it's like I find that you can determine a lot by coloring, right? Yes. So that's like you can get a lot just by looking at it that you don't get necessarily by smelling or tasting it because if you get like a garnet color, it's more likely to be from a certain region or if it's like really dark ruby, then it's like, okay, it's probably, you're probably talking about something in the Cab Sauve, Bordeaux sort of yes, area, yeah. right? Yeah. 
My my uh, go-to always is to look for any type of purple tinges. And right. If I see purple tinges, then usually, and 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 again, this is this is where you can trip yourself up by tr by making an assumption too early in a tasting, and you say, oh, I I see some purple notes in that, and my my three grapes that usually have those purple notes are kind of gamay, purple color to it, gamay, yeah. syrah, and uh, malbec. Right. So when I see that, if I've got a real bright kind of orangey, tawny colored wine, you know, most likely I'm leaning towards something Italian. But if but if I see something a little darker with those purple notes, then I'm probably thinking one of those three. And then I look for other characteristics of the wine that will lead me in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's easy to talk about it, but when I'm doing the blind, you know, I, I'm like, I, I have not been doing well with my group, right? Mm. With the group, you know. There's the one, the one week when Rob brought in three of the same varietal. It's like crazy. Three of the same varietal. I think it was three Chardonnay. But that's just a mind fuck. It was. <laughs> they were so different. It was yeah. like, holy shit. They were so different. Everyone got messed up. But Chardonnay can be very different, right? Like, yeah. that's the thing about the expression of Chardonnay, right? Like, there are certain grapes. And what are some of the other, like, uh, we kind of just take these conversations wherever they go. But um, the, now that we're talking about wine, and I like to nerd out about it, like, what do you find some of the other grapes that are, they can just taste very differently based on the expressions? Well, I think the aromatics, like yeah. the Viognier's and the Gewurztraminer. Mm -hmm. I cannot stand Gewurztraminer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. To me, don't like it. One of my favorite grapes, and I love, I love, it, uh, I love a Vouvray or or a Chenin Blanc. Yeah, I love Chenin Blanc. I love them, but yeah. um, but it's it's so funny because there there is what you say, you know, the mind fuck about when you you know what a, a wine is. When I know what a wine is, I will like it. Mm -hmm. So I'll go to the LCBO. I don't think we, we don't have any of Ouvres on the case for wine list, but I'll go and I'll, if I know producer and I like it, I will buy Vouvray and, and I will love it. To me, they're just really clean and the stone fruits. I love stone fruits. On a blind tasting, I will usually not pick out a Chenin Blanc and I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... And I have to go to a psychotherapist and get them to figure out why do you have a problem with shedding blood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just making some wine notes for myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, I love. So. But you know, when I do when I do the um, uh, the kind of the at, at the Alora Mill, we do a, a eleven course tasting menu. And my whole life has been eleven courses. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice menu. Oh, yeah, shit. Chef Dacha does a great job. Um, you know, my whole life has been tasting menus, right? Even at Canoe. I was at Canoe for 20 years, and, and for um, probably my last 10 years there, I would fill in as, as Psalm there when, when either Billy was away or Will was away or Emily was away. And it wasn't, it wasn't that often, but for years I would do it. So you're dealing with, you know, some, you know, really, to say we were, we had the biggest spenders at Canoe Restaurant on wine, no, we probably didn't because... Our clientele was very high-end, but they were business people. I want to talk about your clientele in a second, but I do want to mention, talk about something about the canoe and your pairing experience. Is that like, is that what you would say, would say your specialty is yes. now? Is like pairing food and wine? Yeah. Yeah. That's Which my... is cool, because I think, you know what, that I think that's a lot harder than people think it is, because it's very easy for me. I've never been super good at it, because, I, I again, I just don't think... 
like I love drinking wine. I love to eat good foods. I'm, I'm a vegetarian, so that eliminates a lot of the pairing options, right? Which are natural. And like I just don't even. I literally have been a vegetarian for so long that I don't remember what some meat tastes like. Oh wow! Right? So it's so how am I going to pair it? The other side of that is that I don't know, like pairing wine with the food. It's like it's very easy to be like, oh, fish, white wine and fish, right? Like I think people just tend to fall back on, they just fall back on the standards, right? So it's yeah. very easy to bullshit your way through a food and wine pairing. And, and like white wine does, can, most white wine tastes pretty good with most food, right? Yeah. But if you're really going to zero in on like what tastes good, and like obviously most red wine is going to taste like a, a good, thick, juicy red wine is going to taste great with a steak. Like most people know that part of it. And so you can bullshit the rest a lot. So talk to me a little bit about how you have become a specialist in sort of doing the pairing. Because yeah. a, a friend of ours, like we were talking about earlier before we started recording, Wes Classen, who's been on this show, is also really good at that. Yes, yeah, very good. Yeah. So like, and I'm always, I always marvel at that. I wish, because it's, it's something I wish I was better at. So yeah. to talk to me like about I, that. I always, I always um, try and follow Three, three different approaches. Number one is I look to balance um, whether I'm balancing flavors. So if I've got a dish that's really acidic, like in the beginning of a tasting menu, usually your food preparations are going to be lighter, fresher, crisper, more type of dishes where you're squeezing lemon on rather than, like you're not going to have as your first course of a multi-course tasting menu, a poached salmon with a cream sauce on it. You're not, it's not going to. It's mm. probably going to be something raw and fresh where you're going to squeeze a lemon or lime onto it. And that's and so that's where the French wines are, are brilliant for it. So mm. a Chablis or a Sancerre or a Muscadet, I, I look at those type of things right away. Um, so I look at balancing uh, acidity with acidity or salty, salty and sweet. So one of the great pairings, and this is moving into the meal, uh, one of the great pairings is like a real salty blue cheese or an aged Gouda with, um, with a port. Mm. Actually, there's one of the best, ta- best pairings I've ever had, and I love this stuff, and it is not high-end, is, a, uh, is uh, the koki. koki uh, you, you would have koki vermouth on mm-hmm. your... On your. Mm-hmm. So koki will, uh, produces a DOCG Barolo, which is your highest level of Barolo wine, Nebbiolo-based grape, and they make a vermouth out it's of it. It's also known as Kip's Crack. Kip's Crack. <laughs> <laughs> and they whack, they hit it with all these different herbs and whatever, and it's, they, so it's called Barolo Quinato, and it's koki. And they've produced this to have with a bitter type of chocolate. Mm-hmm. So you have a chocolate mousse, dark chocolate mousse, or, or chocolate tort, and this vermouth, and it is, it is, it is fantastic. It's one of the best things I've ever tasted, that Barolo and the, the certain bittery herbal notes of that. Um, but they're, they're weird things. If you have them by themselves, they're hard to drink. Mm-hmm. Like most, most vermouth, not many people will drink, uh, will drink a vermouth, uh, you know, on the rocks or whatever. They're just a little weird, right? Yeah, but it's like when you get a good one. When you get a good it's, pair. It's like, fuck, and when you get a good vermouth, they taste so good on they're their own. Really like good. I, I've taken to drinking a lot of vermouth on its own now. Yeah, um, the Antica formula, yeah, you know, that one with yeah. a really cool label. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. But, um, you know, getting, getting back to what you're asking me, also, um, you know, I'll look at the whole thing, food and wine that grow together. You pair together. 
So a lot of people ask me about that and I'll say, well, hey, let's look at France, for example. And as you travel down through the central part of France, through Burgundy and you're heading down south and you go into the Rhone and then you're going into the south of France, as you motor down, your food is getting a little bit more rustic, a little bit heavier, a little bit you know, more tortillers and that type of thing. And your wine is the same. You're not, you know, you're not getting, you know, light, uh, fresh, acidic Pinot Noir. You're getting Cadenian and you're getting Cabernet Sauvignon, where, um, you know, somebody was asking me about one of our wines from Provence, and, and I know it's really ultra-tannic. And I said, you know that movie... Uh, Silence of the Lamb, when, when Hannibal Lecter's wearing that face mask because, you know, you don't want to... Well, the tannins are so big on this, it's just like you're wearing the Hannibal Lecter mask. It's so rich, right? Yeah. So, so tannic. And, and that's what some of the wines are like. They're brilliant. Yeah. But with fish, you got to stay away from tannins. Right. And would you do, like, so when you were talking about, like, the blue cheese and the port, would you do that in the middle of a... Pairing dinner, or you always wait till the wait end? Wait till the yeah. end, yeah. So, because the, the craft of it, like, in the art of it, is, also, is like, you also need to... Because you could easily eat, like, some blue cheese in the middle of a dinner, but, like, if you're pairing wine with it, then, like, the, the crazy thing about wine, I'm trying to say this properly, is that, like, the order in which you drink it matters so much, because if you drink something really sweet or really tannic then it's going to overwhelm the next thing that you might drink. Yes. Right. It's very true. Like the order, that's why the order, the order of how your food is presented is very important. And yeah, like if, if a chef, if a chef doesn't have the right order of operations or the right, the, you know, a, a, a logical order of sending out stuff, then you've got a problem for the person pairing it. Have you ever worked with a chef who's fucked that up? Yes. Yeah. You don't have to say who it is, but like... Do you know who I mean? I think so, but I... Yes. <laughs> I think I do, but... Uh, yeah, where, where, you're, where, you're starting, where you're starting with... Uh, oh, yeah, let's start with foie gras, and then we're going to go to scallop ceviche, and then let's do a salad, and then let's do some smoked salmon, and now we're going to do a butternut squash soup. And, and so, you're all over the place. And, and, and like, us growing up in, like, sort of the more classically... <laughs> classic um style of yeah exactly like classic <laughs> style of like old school restaurant touring where the chef is the king like you in your position you can't really say shit right like you just got to kind of take or do you ever like talk back to him and be like look you're, you're fucking this up no i i really would never and i and there's only one instance where i really had that difficulty yeah and there's not a lot i could do and, and basically when you have a situation where things are messed up like that, it can really affect your pours. Because when you're doing lots of courses, you have to be careful with how much you're pouring. And, and ultimately, if somebody's having a 10 or 11 or a 15 course tasting menu, you want certain wines to be consumed over a couple of courses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And usually you don't want to look chintzy where you're pouring an ounce per course, you want to usually go two, two and a half, three ounces in my my eyes. Yeah, but you're not giving 11 six ounce glasses of wine. No. <laughs> oh, shit. Right? Damn. <laughs> right? So you got to be really careful. Otherwise, yeah. somebody's going to just be pie-eyed and right. you, you can't, you can't do it. So, mm. so that's why you want, you want certain, certain wines. If you have a really small course, that's like light and bright and fresh, you know, maybe some fresh tomato with watermelon, you want a little bit of that and then you're going into some tuna tartare. 
jar mm. to follow. So you can kind of pour the same thing, the same wine for two courses, and you've only poured three ounces. Well, if a chef messes that up, you're pouring three ounces there and then three ounces again, and right. then you're bouncing back and forth. And if your fourth or fifth course is a raw, lightly, lightly um, produced dish, you're looking at a really light wine and you're pouring heavier wines in the start of your tasting. It's a, so you got to, yeah, there's a lot of thought that has to go into it. The, the tasting menus, I loved the tasting menus at Canoe. Uh, they were brilliant. Chef, uh, Chef Walsh and Chef John Horn did great stuff. And what was so cool about those, those uh, tasting menus is they always had a theme. Mm. And uh, one of the one of my favorite ones was uh, taste um, taste maritimes. So it was all East Coast. Ooh, cool. So we did. We had such a strong business clientele there, and and a lot of people were always coming in from Europe and the states, and so had no idea of Eastern uh, Canada culture. Oh, so, so lots of Donner and poutine. We well we did or we did a, uh, or or but a lot of the the Newfoundland dishes. So yeah, we got oh, cool. some figgy seafood. duff. What's figgy duff? Oh, figgy duff, and you explain. So we had figgy duff. We had peas pudding. We had um, five or six different things. Bubble and squeak. All wow. of these things, and and I don't know what any of those fucking things. Those stories, the, the stories, <laughs> the stories, and people just love the stories. Right. We did. We did. This was one of my best, you know, screw ups at a table. We did a. Um, uh, it was called Taste Haida Gwaii, so East or West Coast, and Chef had a lot of game on this, and a lot of kind of weird uh, forced floor things like mosses and cedars and wild berries and this. So, so for dessert, for lack of a better word, the dessert was like a crumble, a wild berry crumble. So, so what he did is he had this cedar plank, he warmed up the cedar plank, made it nice and hot, and then he put a nice mixture of like, you know, crumble with wild blueberries, wild blackberries and all of these things, and then put a nice cedar ice cream with it. Really tasty dessert. It was really nice. It looked really nice on the this warm cedar plank. Well, I deliver to a table and I blank out. Can't remember what the hell I got. <laughs> so I put it down and I stare at it and I go, I look at it and they're looking at me. It's a couple and I go, here's your dessert. It's a berry crumble on a warm board. And I walk away. <laughs> I can't remember what the heck it was, right? <laughs> Very crumble, warm board. <laughs> um, so this kind of, uh, so this thing I'm just sort of asking is there is there any kind of food that can't be paired properly with wine, or wine just goes with pretty much anything? Oh, that's a good one. Jeez. Like you're probably not yeah. cereal or something like that, but like or certain things. I think certain things are really tough, but there's always there's always wines for everything. I think. What would I, like, I think really uh, bitter foods, I think, are difficult, mm. right? Like dandelion type of things, yeah, yeah, yeah. like bitter salads. I think those are difficult, but usually you get a nice acidic uh, dressing with it or mouth-watering dressing. There's certain words that, that you should and you shouldn't use when you're, you know, describing wine flavors to your guests, right? And, and acidic is one of those words. You should, oh, it's acidic wine because it almost has a negative connotation. Right, but it's like what, what, but it's when, you, when you nerd out on wine, you realize acidity is one of the things you're looking it's for. It's the key thing, yeah. right? Yeah. I love acidity. So yeah. but, so, you, so I always try and say mouth-watering or tart. Mouth-watering, yeah. Because yeah. 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 it literally does, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember one of the first things I learned in, uh, like, probably W set 
level two was like how to determine if a wine was acidic was the test where you like swallow it and then you put your head down and just hold your mouth and if, if all the uh, saliva runs to the front of your mouth and that, that was a super acidic wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's always stuck with me. It's like it's a way of telling. Like now, as the long, more for um, novices, but like as the more you drink wine, the more you learn about wine. Yeah. you can just you know when it's acidic right away. But yeah, yeah. I like I like um, you know when you speak about wine tasting, or whatever. I like Rob Rob Miller's description because uh, you know he as I, as we said earlier, he runs usually uh, runs the groups. Um, uh, and every now and then Bree does as well, but uh, but Rob always says, you know you got a you know you got a Pinot Grigio in your hand when you get a whole lot of nothing, because Pinot Grigio is not too crazy high on the tartar mouth watering note. It's kind of it's it's the bell curve wine, and that's so I've tasted a bunch of them lately, and, and it's pure bell curve. Like there's nothing outside of that that you know sweet spot that. 60% in the middle. The acidity is not outside of that. The minerality, the fruit, it's all straight yeah, down the middle, right? It's so, the Kelsey's of wine. Kelsey's of wine, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, and that's why that's why it's probably one of the most popular wines in the world. Yes. And it's also why wine nerds hate it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> we're looking like the thing is your palate develops, you want and this is like not to say that like I'm like I'm not on a massive level of like wine drinking. I drink a lot of wine, but like the the more your palate develops, the more, just like anything else in the world, like, okay, for instance, let's, let's compare it to something else. Let's say you're really into surfing and you start surfing, right? And you're like, okay, I really enjoy, I've got, I've figured out how to get up on the board. I know, like, I know how to ride the wave when it comes out to it. Well, now you're searching areas where the waves are more challenging and difficult and bigger right and that's the same with tasting wine in a way because the more your palate develops the more you it searches out wines that are a little bit more unique yes. or funky and like not the same shit you've always drank and which is why almost everybody i know starts like oh yeah when i first started drinking that australian shiraz was amazing and now it's like i couldn't quaff it yeah <laughs> and not many restaurants are carrying it either Right. Yeah. You'll Do you fly, have any? Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> Sorry, no. that sounded derisive. No. But I, <laughs> he's got an entire stock full of yellowtail at yeah, yeah, the yeah. bottom yeah. of Babylon yeah. Sisters. No, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's really remarkable because, you know, people think that because, you know, I do what I do, wine agent, psalm uh, at the Allure Mill, that, that my palate is drawn to the big expensive stuff. And that is by far the from the truth you know to to me um you know the people that have the experience with your first growth bordeaux your grand cru burgundies and whatever they're they're probably going to have a really good cellar and they'll have multiple bottles Mm -hmm. of these wines and you know the average joe won't be spending you know 300 or 500 or a thousand bucks uh, on a bottle of wine but some of these collectors with deeper pockets will. Right. And where they get the excitement from is the fact that they can taste, they'll, they'll get, uh, in 1995, get a six-pack of, you know, Mouton Rothschild. And in 95, they taste it. In 2000, they'll taste it. And they'll make notes in their little book. I've seen it. 
they make notes on their little book about what they got from the wine and how it's evolved. And then in 10, they, 2010, they taste it. In 2015 and 2020, in all of these bottles they taste, they make notes and they, they think about how the wine has evolved, right? And I've tasted so many of these, you know, excellent wines, and I don't get the wow from them that I do from wines that are much less money, where the flavors are fresher. I don't care how a wine has evolved because that's not, you know, like realistically, I can afford decent wines, good wines, but I'm not going to be spending thousands of dollars on wine. Mm -hmm. I'm not, mm -hmm. right? Well, I always say that like the, w, the best thing that WSA courses ever taught me was to buy better wine cheaper. Yeah. Like, and you and I have discussed this before, where it's like instead of, I remember this probably the conversation we had when we first met, but like when... Like now when you go to vintages at the LCBO or whatever, which unfortunately people like us still have to do, instead of like going to, I don't know, California or Pacific Northwest or whatever, or even France for that matter, you're generally going to Le Chile or yeah. Yeah, section because you know, like if you do want to drink a Cab Sauv or whatever, why would you shop in California when you can shop in Chile and get the same quality for a what a third, a quarter of the place? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Or Spain. I think Spain. Spain, yes, Spain yeah. is where the value and actually, is. Italy is like, and like you and I both nerd out about Italian wine, which is why anybody should be checking out Rick at a case for wine. The case for wine. The case for wine. Sorry, sorry, I <laughs> fucked it up. I, I get it right when I read the copy. I know. <laughs> but I don't think I, Rick at the case for wine .com. Check him out because he knows his shit and he has an amazing <laughs> Italian portfolio. Yeah. Rick and I both nerd out about Italian wine. I don't know. I just love that. I always like this is going to sound weird because it almost sounds like a stereotype or something. But there's something about the Italian wine that's like kind of oily and greasy and like, uh, you know what I mean? And it's like an earthy like that. And yeah. that's the stuff that I really go for yeah. as opposed to like the super fruit forward stuff. And of course there's fruit forward Italian wine as well. Yeah. And I mean, whether they got 6,000 varietals or some shit like that. Yeah. It's tricky so, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's tricky stuff. Like, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the really cool things about uh, when I was at Canoes, we had um, different people. We had, um, I think at one point we'd have our main Psalms on, but then you'd have a bunch of people that were certified. And then there were a bunch that were not certified, but that were really strong. Mm -hmm. And we had a little Portuguese guy, Silvio, who was the guy for Spanish and Portuguese wine. And his wine, his knowledge, and he and he could pronounce these these grapes that they have in Portugal. Like I still can't to these day to this day. Then we had another guy, uh, Brandon, who was really good with uh, with French wine. Well, it's because he worked at a at a French restaurant called Perigee. Uh, I think that's what it was called. It was at the uh, distillery district. It was mm -hmm. a French restaurant, and they did tasting menus all the time. Mm -hmm. But what their twist was is if you had a table of six. And first course was lobster. He'd pair wine for the lobster course, but every person at that table would get lobster, but prepared differently. Oh. Right? Really? Yeah. So you could have your poached lobster and butter sauce, and the next guy has, you know, poached lobster done with, I don't know, melted cheese or whatever, and another guy, and he's pairing different wines. Some yes. would be the same, but some would be different. But it was a French restaurant, and they only had French wines. Uh, yeah. So his his knowledge his cool. knowledge was, uh, but but he one of the things he taught me is you know in in wine like 
you know, dealing with what we do, you hope to taste as much as you can and and remember as much as you can about the stuff that you've tasted, but, but you can't remember everything. And his go-to line when he knew that he made a mistake or he was wrong is, well, that wine has really evolved in the bottle. That's not how I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really evolved. Great. <laughs> and this goes back to like the old Seinfeld thing. It's like, the truth is what Rick has just informed all of you is that you're all fucked. Because if, if you don't know, you're going to go to the restaurant. <laughs> it's like the old Seinfeld thing where you go to the mechanic. It's like, well, you need a new Johnson rod. I'm like, yeah, I guess I need it. <laughs> mine's, the, mine's the Messerschmitt bearing. Yeah, yeah you got a yeah. problem with the Messerschmitt. Keep the dishwasher isn't working. Well, it's, it needs a new Messerschmitt, Barry. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we've kept you for a while, but I want to talk about one more thing before we let you go, uh, and then we'll have you plug uh, rickatthecaseforwine.com. Um, I nailed it that time. And I said it in that sexy radio voice. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah um, that is some of the famous people you've served at Canoe. So you have served a bunch of celebrities when you were working there. Yeah. Who was the biggest asshole? Oh, that's a th- that's a good one. If you don't want to say, you don't have to. But we yeah, were no, I just think you know I, I did serve a lot of celebrities. There were certain people that 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 came in with a lot of attitude. Yeah. And I thought uh, one night Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Jones came in and a lot of plastic surgery at that table yeah like she couldn't give anyone the time of day she was right into the table and he was the sweetest guy i've I served, I heard he was a nice guy such a dude like such a nice guy he, and i've served him maybe three or four times and uh yeah like i i always found that the act a lot of the actual stars are really nice people sweet people but it's the handlers that are the pain. Ah, yeah. Yeah, they're so nervous, you know, oh, blah, 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 blah. They need this, they need that. Adam Sandler was just in the area. And, yeah, I won't, I won't go into that. But, yeah, they, they spent a lot of time in the area in, in Guelph and whatever. So he's apparently really nice, but I but handlers can be a bit of a difficulty. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I've heard also Adam Sandler is a great dude as yeah, well. Yeah, great dude. I, yeah. Personally, have no love for his movies, but that's a different story. But uh, (laughs) this is uh, political commentary about Adam Sandler. If you don't vote for me for mayor because I don't like Adam Sandler movies, I'm just going to be okay with that. (laughs) But but I have heard that he's an awesome guy. Looks like like I'm voting for someone else then. (laughs) Well, you were already. You know know who's really cool, though, and this was so funny. Actually, when I, sorry, before we get there, but when I told Dan I was running for mayor, he was like, yeah, who else is running? (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) the guy uh, this guy came in and we were really busy one night it was a Thursday night packed and the whole restaurant hushed and it was it was um, Nikki Six Mm. oh nice right and but his hair he had the big headband on the hair all teased up just tattoos ripped jeans and we had him at the worst table in the house and but but there's a hush and people kept on looking at him and you know I, and he was in with it was so stereotypical you got one lady who's got the clipboard and you got another lady who's um very pretty and you don't know who she is i think she was the rep from the local radio station so i say hey, you know we're going to move you to another table and and uh, so we moved him to one of the best tables of the house and uh yeah it was just really cool like i i kind of there's certain people where i would I've served so many celebrities from, you know, athletes 
David Beckham to Sting to blah, blah, blah. But there's certain ones, and I don't know what it is, that means something to you and you get nervous. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. One was Ronnie Hawkins. I'm like, I'm like shitting my back. Oh. It's the Hawk, man. Let it's me, the Hawk. Let me tell you something, man. I spent a lot of time with Ronnie Hawkins because he's really good friends with one of my former bosses and friends. And you don't need to feel nervous around that guy. <laughs> yeah, but I did. I did, right? Yeah, well, did. he's gone now, so rest yeah, in peace, Ronnie Hawkins. But Ronnie Hawkins yeah. is, uh, well... Yeah, he's, he's, well, I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sting, no, I was, you know, I actually went up to Sting and I said, Sting was really funny when he came in because he was sitting at this, our best table at Canoe, which was called table 26. And it's kind of a a corner table overlooking the southern view of of, uh, the lake. So you're looking due south so you can see Niagara Falls way in the distance and the western part of the city. So you're looking over the Rogers Center and, and so on. And it was a fall night. I think he had. A, it was an October concert, and the sky was orange. And Sting is sitting there overlooking the sunset, but this bright orange light is coming in. So it almost looked like he was bronzed. Oh fuck! Like Washington Fields of Gold. Yeah, yeah, Washington Fields. Exactly. And, and and I'm serving two women. I was, you know, mostly serving. Uh, or I was serving primarily at Canoe, and uh, but the, the the wine every now and then. Anyways, I had these two ladies that were just losing it because Sting is in the house. And I went up to him. I go, I go, no. I said, you know, sir, um, these two ladies are just that. Uh, they'll be coming to see your show tomorrow night and wondered if they could have your autograph. And he goes, yeah, of course, get them up here. You know, they were up there and, uh, you know, just giggling like crazy. And Sting is somebody else who I heard was actually a good guy, which surprises me because his entire online persona would lead you to believe that he is an incredible douchebag. But mm. apparently he's not. So yeah, he was, good, good for him. Nice. Apparently he's genuinely the guy he portrays. Yeah, like it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's funny, like, I, I think a lot of people will assume that the, the heavy hitter, the powerful people, the CEOs and whatever are going to be jerks, and that was not my experience. But let me ask you this, do you think that because they have the handler who's a jerk for them is why they can be that way? Yeah, well, a lot of this, a lot of the CEOs, unless they were holding a vent, would have a handler. Like, I wonder if, like, I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if they're a total asshole to their handler... And then, so therefore, they can be nice to their server. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? So then maybe. the handler's a dick to you. But there's like, like, and you're like, oh, and st- like, not necessarily Sting, but let's just use him as an example. St- Sting is like, oh, lovely to you, lovely to his fans. And then as soon as you guys leave, he's saying, why are you letting these fucking people come and talk to me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's true, but, yeah. I think, but I think that it is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like a lot of the times, if, if people are just in by themselves, they wouldn't have a handler to worry, but, if, but it would be if they had a group that they were. Sure, yeah. Right? Yeah, like... Um, you know, there's this one guy, he um, he was the sweetest guy, and he's, they, they call him uh, Canada's Warren Buffett. His name is Prem Watsa, mm. and he's the guy that um, runs uh, Fairfax Financial. I think he's still doing it. Maybe he's retired since, but but they're the ones that that have taken over BlackBerry and, and, and so on. And the sweetest guy, classy guy, and uh, very respectful all the time, and you think, oh... Mr. Watts is coming in. The guy's worth how many billions of dollars? What are you going to have tonight to drink? Oh, just bring me, a, you know, a nice Oregon Pinot Noir, nothing more than 80 bucks. Okay? Simple. No attitude, no nothing. 
But you know, and you know how to deliver on that too, yeah. right? So that helps. Okay, well, we've taken up a bunch of your time. The cool stories. It was great catching up with you again. Yeah. I just want to say. Rick and I used to work together for a brief spell yeah. like at uh, Rich Uncle Tavern. That's right around the corner from Sugar Run. You should check that place out as well if you're in Kitchener. But Rick has also been a massive supporter of the show. Rick's an awesome guy. You should check out Rick at thecaseforwine.com. You should check out the Case for Wine portfolio. Rick knows how to do a fucking tasting. I will tell you that. And he knows what he's talking <laughs> yes, about. Yes, if you're wine wine buyers or psalms, yeah, contact yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, give him a shout. He's Rick's an awesome guy, and uh, yeah, well, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, that and, was fun. And yeah. thanks for your support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anything you want to plug before we? Or did no, I just as, do it for you? No, as you said. What's like, your Instagram handle? At Rick Baroncelli. Okay. Uh, last name B A R O N C E L L I. And uh, yeah, uh, or Rick at the case for wine.com. So awesome. perfect. I'll yeah. put those links in the show notes and then everyone wants to buy uh, some wine, they'll contact you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget to vote October 24th. Vote. Perfect. Thanks. Thank Cheers, you. guys. Cheers. Cheers.